Football Social Daily. Premier League Update. Here we go again with another week underway in the world of football and another Football Social Daily here to get you fully briefed on all the day's footballing news. I'm Jim Salverson. I'm here with Nama Korn and Phil Hudson. Hello, boys. Hello. Morning, mate. Doesn't seem like much has changed over the weekend, really. Liverpool oh, are man. still top of the Premier League and Pep insists they can be caught. Um, Wolves have proved they are the scourge of the top six again after their win against Man City. Meanwhile, West Ham did a very West Ham thing and missed out on the chance to go third when they lost to Crystal Palace. I have a theory as to why this might be that I'm going to share in a little bit, why football this season is proving so difficult to predict and why teams like West Ham and Wolves are not winning the games they should win but are winning the games they shouldn't win, if that makes any sense. It's a theory that will help your Ackers. Trust me, when you're predicting your football bets for next weekend. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is still at the wheel at Manchester United. <laughs> it would just appear that he is steering Manchester United towards an absolutely massive bloody ditch at the moment. So we're <laughs> going to talk about that, how long he's going to stay in the job. But before we do any of that, we need to send our congratulations to podcast regular Steve McNaughton, yeah. who introduced a brand new member to the football social team, Zachary Stephen Kerry McNaughton, who was born just after midnight on Sunday morning. So hasn't seen Liverpool win yet, but congratulations to Steve and Sarah, and well done, Sarah, yep. for preventing Steve from calling him Sadio. Yeah, and he's so. pro- probably going to have to fork out 50 quid for an Alison Becker baby grow <laughs> at some point in the near future. Can you get So them? who's the real winner? Well, probably. Probably sure you can. Right, let's talk football, and we're going to start at Manchester United because there is a fascinating scenario playing out at Manchester United right there. The Crisis Club Derby, as Ant dubbed it on the weekend preview show, was this weekend, the final game of the Premier League weekend. It was Newcastle versus Manchester United. Some calling it a shock result, Phil. I know you're itching <laughs> to have your say on this one already. Mate, I can see you just mate, like... Wild horses could up. not have dragged me off this podcast this morning. <laughs> so was it a shock? Newcastle won, Manchester United nil. Yeah. I said not. I told Marley, our other Newcastle fan on Friday, you're going to get a result of the weekend. Yeah, I, I think you'd underestimate how crap we actually are. Though. <laughs> um, I, I, I was stunned. I'm not going to... like. I had money on Man United and everything. <laughs> I thought, And even money, I thought they were a really, really good price to turn us over because I hadn't factored in... We we were drastically improved. He he went back to playing a Benitez formation that the players seemed very very comfortable with, and he mm. was very open in the press that he was going to do that. To be fair, yeah. um, what does that say about Bruce's tactics? We can come on to that. But. Yeah, we absolutely. And but but I could not believe how bad Man United were. They were rubbish. Mm. They were so poor. I looked at the team before, and I was like, "You've still got De Gea, who's world class. You've still got Maguire, who has aspirations to be world class, and is an eighty-five million pound yeah. centre half." You've got Fred playing in centre midfield, who's 57 million. You've got Rashford, who's played 200 games for Manchester United, however many caps for England. You've got Daniel James, who everyone's raving about. So so whilst it's clear that they were weaker than they would have liked to have been, and the real sort of acid test of how weak they were was when he looked at the bench. Yeah. Because there was just kids on the bench, plus Rojo. Well, we spoke to, to Jay Motti from Full Time Devils on yesterday's Premier League review show, and he said he felt that probably, well, as long as he can remember, that that's the worst... Premier League starting eleven he's ever seen for Manchester United. Well, Sooner said, Sooner, but it's gets, a team that's better awful... than twelfth, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, the thing. Is, is it, it though? Is it though? Is it? I think it is. I think all the Su- players. Sooner said yesterday, it, it was interesting. Graham Sooner, who I, I genuinely think has some really weird opinions at times, mm-hmm. but he said, "There's net. This is literally the worst Manchester United team for thirty years. There's never been a better time well, in, the history, the, the worst in the history of the, the Premier League since the eighties. There's never, there's never been a better time to play Manchester United, and he was proven right. I mean." 
we we got at them. But even like from the first couple of minutes, I thought, oh, we looked at it, which was encouraging. Um, and they just they just didn't really look that bothered. At, you know, McTominay tried, but you know, Fred fifty seven million or something, and could barely control the ball at two one little part. ginger Rajis from North Shields. Just Can you name me over. three better Freds that would be better in central midfield? Uh, Flint Stone, Fred Dimber, Fred Truman, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Dimmer, We've done it. There you go, easy job. <laughs> but with the Newcastle United tactic things, before we get on to Alex, I think it's an interesting point. Yeah. It's no surprise really that when you've got a team that's been assembled by Rafa Benitez to play a certain way, going back to the tactics of Rafa Benitez is going to benefit those players, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know whether it was sort of Hubert from Bruce at the start to say oh we're going to play more front foot football you know it's, it's like when a new manager comes in and the first thing they normally do is criticise the fitness of the players that they've inherited because it buys them look, oh we're going to get them fit they're not fit enough yeah. we're going to ban time Bruce went he said yeah. oh well that, you know we're going to play more front foot football we're going to be more attacking and all the fans are going you haven't got the personnel no. like they're set up as a side with no possession who hit on the break and Almiron was particularly successful in that side last year because he's pacey and he can hit sides on the break and they've signed St Maximin who I don't know if you've watched the game yesterday. He's guys. like a, he's like one of uh, what's it, the road runner from yeah, the cartoons. He's, he's genuinely he, he looks rapid. Like he, he doesn't really. You, you sometimes wonder how he's still got the ball, but he keeps going and going and going, and he he gets Newcastle up the pitch, which is really important, I think, for, from what you're saying. In the way that Newcastle are trying to play at the moment, they hit Manchester United on the break, and and hence the goal came from it sounds a, bit like a, a breakaway. When he was at Middlesbrough. Yeah, but very similarly, he, he Maximin picked the ball up and, and progressed the ball fifty yards. You know, and, and took three or four defenders with him on that run, which opened up space. So, I mean, that's the kind of um, football that Steve Bruce is obviously trying to implement. Mm. You know, Manchester United did have their chances. Harry Maguire had a free header, which he probably should have scored. Oh, there's no question um, he should have scored. It, you know, but I think if you saw the highlights or, or watched the game, we were we were full value for it. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I was watching in a very busy pub, wrangling a six-year-old, so I didn't, I wasn't fully focused on the game. <laughs> but from what I saw, Newcastle oh. were. Every bit deserving of their victory. Almiron had a chance. Yeah. Long stuff at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Carroll had a header. Shaw had a header. What I will say, um, I, I like Miguel Almiron and I like his endeavour. I don't think he's showing enough quality. He had a couple of shots. There was one which <laughs> he got into the box and it looked like he, he panicked a bit. He got a bit of a nosebleed thinking, what am I doing touch, it? Didn't he? Uh, and, and he had a shot and it was so far wide, it could have been halfway between the corner flag and the post. Yeah. Like, that's how far wide it was. And I think. You know, you need to be showing more than that. You're playing for Newcastle United and he runs his socks off and there's no doubt in that. And I think his actual work rate is exceptional. Uh, but you'd expect that in a, in a team like Newcastle. You, you need to be working hard. I just think he needs to be showing a little bit more quality. But as for who Bruce brought off the bench, Andy Carroll, Andy Carroll's got a star factor. And I said this on the show yesterday. Andy Carroll gets people off their seats and you wouldn't think you'd ever say that about Andy Carroll. But when you bring him on, you think, all right, things are about to get busy here. Mm. Because he brings a different dimension. You know what you're going to get of Andy Carroll. And even if you try and stop him, and Twan Zabi did just enough to put Carroll off when he put a header over the crossbar in the second half, you know that he's going to get the better of you and he's going to win headers and he's just going to throw you and muscle you about. When Similar to was... what Rondon did last year, in all fairness. But Carroll is just an expert at it. Mm. And for whatever reason, when Steve Bruce brought Andy Carroll on, myself watching the game in the studio, and I'm sure people sat around, and people in St. James's would have gone, Right, here we go. we got a game when now. When Carroll was at West Ham, you had a genuine feeling when he came on on the very few times that you he were did come score. on. Yeah, you were going to get a goal. And yeah. you could see the body language change in think... the defensive team as well because defenders are still scared oh. of him the because he's a consider, unit. The other thing to consider about Carroll is that he's a better player in black and white stripes than he will be anywhere else. I know it's a cliche. <laughs> and you, yeah, you can hammer your belt. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> 
but it, it matters to him so yeah. much. Longstaff, the two Longstaffs yesterday, Matty Longstaff, I haven't, I've seen a bit of him in the under 23s, but. Premier League debut for him. Premier League debut, smashed on the bottom corner, but he ran his socks off. Mm. You could see the two Longstaffs in the midfield, it mattered to them. It absolutely mattered to them. And that's the same with Carroll playing for us. It just feels different for him. There was a brilliant interview with Andy Carroll in The Athletic, actually, where he talks about how much, it, how important it was to come back to St. James's Park, which is good reading if you're an Andy Carroll fan or a Newcastle United fan. But with the best win in the world, I don't really want to talk about Newcastle. I know, you want to talk I about, want to talk about Manchester United and Solskjaer. Yeah, because the sack race at the moment, the odds on the next Premier League manager to get the sack... Surprisingly, Marco Silva's still the favourite. <laughs> of course he is. Five to four. He's been the favourite since yeah. the start of the season. Oh, they no. could win three in a row, four in a row, and he'd still be in the top five. So he's, like, he's only ever won one game away from absolute crisis, Marco Silva. <laughs> yeah. Solskjaer, five to two at the moment. It's a difficult situation for Manchester United to be in. I floated this on Twitter last night. I suggested that Solskjaer might be on the way out and who comes in as the replacement. And the general consensus seems to be from fans that the manager isn't the problem which I think we'd all agree that the manager isn't the problem but the manager certainly is a problem at Manchester United I, right now. I said a few weeks ago on this very podcast that he was out of his depth and he looks naive Niall, Niall really helpfully edited that <laughs> and took me a little bit out of context and I got absolutely rinsed on Twitter <laughs> so but but I stand by it he's out of his depth I think naive's a, a really good word he's not the subs he made yesterday, he didn't really decisively influence the game. I know he, he didn't have a lot of firepower to play with, but they, they were so poor. And they've been poor for weeks. And you just don't look at him and go, you're going to be able to turn this around. Mm. The the reality is, as I said at the outset, he was not qualified to take this this job. And he, if it was in any other £670 million turnover business, he'd be nowhere near it. He'd be absolutely nowhere near it. His qualifications for the Man United job are the same as Bruce's qualifications for Newcastle job. He's a Man United man. Mm, but yeah. what Solskjaer has got in his favour is that Gary Neville, you know, all his all his mates in the media are, are sticking up for him mm. and that they're sort of refusing to put the boot in and that's going to keep the fans on side. But the truth is, they've just lost to a very, very, very poor Newcastle United. Mm. Very poor. The issue is, I think, with Solskjaer is what do you do next? Because A, in the current situation the club has, who wants that job? And I think what Solskjaer's reign is maybe proving is that a lot of fans haven't got the patience for the rebuilding job that needs to be done. If you've got Pochettino in, there is still an element that he'd have to do rebuilding that club. He'd have to build it in his own image. If you went and got Allegri in, for example, who's the other favourite, it might bring a little bit more short-term success. They might get further in the Europa League. They might win an FA Cup. But you've still got the issue that they had with Jose Mourinho and Louis van Gaal who reflectively probably got a lot better out of the that Manchester United team yeah, they, than they deserved they, by playing negative, poor football. Well, so this, I mean, what do you want? If you're a United fan, what do you want? Well, first of all, we've been talking about Maurizio Pochettino possibly taking the Manchester United job for six months mm. on this show. He used to be good back then, didn't he? Well, <laughs> six months it's not ago. even that. He's still so good. After what happened in the summer and what's happening now and the way that the fans feel towards those at board level at Manchester United, hearing what Pochettino said in the summer about I'm not the manager, I'm a coach. I control the players only. I don't control the players coming in in terms of transfers. I don't deal with any of that. All my job is to do is to coach those players that are basically given to me by Daniel Levy. So why in that situation then would Maurizio Pochettino touch Manchester United unless it was to do with no money? No idea. Because it's no the exact <laughs> same. If anything, it's worse at Manchester United. So why would Maurizio Pochettino go from 
sitting there and saying, oh, I'm a coach, not a manager, because I don't choose the signings, I don't choose the transfers. So I don't think Maurizio Pochettino going to Manchester United is an obvious fit as it might have been. Maybe six months ago it would have been, but now I don't think it, w- it is because of the noises he's been making about Spurs, unless that's just all hot air to get himself out of there. I, mean, the diff- I don't know. I suppose the big difference would be the financial structures that Spurs have. If you're going to commit to a five-year plan, which is what everyone seems to agree that they need, mm. they need a plan, they need to have a five-year strategy, whatever, do you think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is in a better place to deliver that five-year strategy than Maurizio Pochettino. Where it's a club, really simple question. Where do the club need to be within that five-year plan, though? So if we're going, right, five years rebuilding. Starting from we, when? We've got, yeah. right, so last year, so four seasons left of from rebuilding. Yeah. How far down can the club fall for that to be acceptable during that time? Because at the moment, Manchester United, it seems like an insane thing to say, are at the risk of being in a relegation battle. Oh, I mean, season. yeah, this is what my mate said yesterday. He said, you know, you've got to win your six-pointers um, as a Newcastle <laughs> yeah. fan. But... No, I mean, realistically, they're not going to go down. and But also, they Why haven't not? got... A d- Why not? Well, because they're not. They just won't. They've got too many... Get your belt ready. They're too good to go down. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same point, in, in the January window, if they were in any danger of relegation, they could just go and spend 200 million. It's not a big thing for them. But just because they're Manchester United and they're a drastically rich club, they don't have a divine right to success. If you look at other leagues, mm. historically big clubs go through fallow periods. AC Milan are like in the bottom half I'm of Serie so, A. I'm so glad you said that. AC Milan are in 13th position. I was just Googling AC Milan's last 10 years of league positions. They won the Champions League in 2007. They beat Liverpool. They got to the final in 2005 uh, uh, where they lost to Liverpool. So considering that they, in, in that space of two years, they got to two Champions League finals. Ever since then, it's been a slippery slope. They were playing my team Portsmouth the year after in the Europa League or two years later. And they had great players, Ronaldinho, Gattuso, Pirlo was there at the time, Ancelotti was manager. I mean, it's almost an Italian parallel to what we're seeing at Manchester United. Great players at Manchester United. Pogba, Lukaku, Sanchez might not have performed as well, but they had a great manager in Jose Mm. Mourinho and an equally good manager in Louis van Gaal before him. So what I'm saying, I guess, is look what's happened to them. It's taken them a long time. The San Siro's fallen to bits. They've ended up being sort of lower mid-table. They would be lucky to get into the Europa League a couple of seasons, AC Milan. Are we seeing the same at Manchester United? And it certainly looks very similar. But let me read you some fan reaction to the suggestion that Ole should go. And this kind of goes hand in hand with the rebuilding thing, that there is a belief, and everyone accepts there is a rebuilding project to do, but I don't think there's a genuine belief in the fans that it can happen at the moment. So this is Steve. He said... The problem isn't the manager, it's the owners. Changing the boss will just kick the can down the road for a couple of years. We could hire Guardiola, assisted by Klopp, and we'd still end up in the same place in a few years' time. Connor says Woodward is the big problem here, no matter who comes in, as long as he's meddling in football decisions. United almost certainly won't be competing for the league and the Champions League. Danny says nothing will change by sacking the manager. It's been done three times and it's not worked. We can't keep doing the same thing. Our squad is poor. We'll be lucky to finish anywhere near the top Mm. ten. Do you think, though, that Edward would sat in the boardroom going, we're going to buy this player and this player and this player? Do you honestly believe that? I don't believe that. No. I think Woodward's job is to negotiate the transfer yeah. and to sort that out. And there's genuine criticism that can be levelled at him about how they approach that strategically. Maguire came in way, way, way too late because they wouldn't pay the extra money unless they knew that. And they, they've overpaid for Maguire. I don't think anyone would dispute that. Um, you know, there hasn't been a sort of cohesive vision as to how they're going to get they should be getting their business done early they've got the financial clout to do it they knew they were going to move Lukaku on so how on earth a club of that stature with that kind of financial backing having signed a striker to replace him before they got him out the door is just insane to me 
But at the same time, I don't think Woodward's going, all right, I quite like that lad at Swansea, Dan James. We'll bring him in. Oh, we need a centre-half. We'll go and get Maguire. He's got a, they've got a scouting team. Yeah, They'll have more scouts than I've had hot dinners. It you feels know, like the solution to Manchester United's project problems, this criticism of the ball, this Christmas criticism of Woodward, this lack of structure is a director of football, which was talked about, it's been talked about six for ages, months yeah. ago, and it's kind of died off a little bit. But that would provide a buffer zone. It would give the fans something... That they would, as long as it wasn't someone like Rio Ferdinand they bought in, they could go. There's I, a, pro, I there's think a project. I, I there's advocated a Edwin here. Van der Sar a while ago. Yeah, he's, he's, he's chief exec. Similar role at Ajax he's for a chief while, exec but he's moved at up Ajax, now, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's chief exec. But uh, I mean, you look at the teams that are successful at the moment. Uh, Manchester City, Jiki Bagheristan is mm. their director of football. He controls all of their football operations in terms of transfers. Um, Liverpool, um, they've got a director of football. I mean, that's what you need. I think it's what you need. I think it's in in the modern game now. It's very difficult for any one person, any one manager, to oversee the whole of a football operation because there's just so much work. Particularly when you're talking about a club of the scale of Manchester United. Yeah, it's huge. Um, you know, at the lower levels, obviously, you can get away with it, and even in some of the low, smaller Premier League clubs with smaller football operations, you can get away with it. But in terms of the job that needs to be undertaken by Manchester United now, they've got to come up with a plan. They've got to commit to a plan. Which I, I think they've kind of done. I think, but they've. I still think they're half arse on it. Mm. And then they've got to say, right, who is the best guy? If the best guy is Solskjaer, fair enough. If that's what they genuinely believe, fair enough, no problem. I don't believe it, but that that's their decision to make. If they don't, if they think that Pochettino is in a better place to develop the young talent they've got, to identify players, bring them in who are young and hungry, and improve them, and to give the Manchester United first team a hunger and a fill that with players who have a hunger and a desire to carry that club forward, I, I think his track record says he's, he's a perfect fit for them. Mm. He plays great football, he, and, he, and he's also, he wants out of Spurs. I mean, I, I'm assuming, you know, we'll talk about that at some point, but he's he definitely wants out of Tottenham now. Well, it's Liverpool next for Manchester United after the international break, so that should be a nice <laughs> they'll, they'll nice, get, nice bit of relief for them. Well, they need players that, back, they have obviously. To have, they have to get a result there. Well, we're going to talk about Liverpool next because Liverpool have a eight-point lead in the race for the Premier League title. Can they maintain it? Pep says City will catch them at some point. We'll talk about that next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily, Premier League updates. Football Social Daily, we're going to talk about Liverpool's lead at the top of the Premier League in a moment. Can they maintain it? But before we do, I want to share a theory. We won't dwell too long on this, but we saw Wolves this weekend picking up points at the Etihad Stadium. They've become a team that loves to beat anyone in the top six. Hmm. And suddenly it's looking much rosier for Wolves than it certainly was a couple of weeks back. So I've got a little bit of a theory here as to why Wolves have been struggling so far this season but got a result at the weekend. And this comes largely off the back of watching West Ham versus Palace at the weekend as well, because I think it's something that is shared to a certain extent by West Ham. And it's becoming more and more difficult to predict football results in general as we're seeing this shift in teams, almost like this new blood of teams that want to be in the top six, so like a West Ham or a Wolves or a Leicester City, or you would have said Everton at the beginning of the season. Now, I'm not so sure. So, are newer teams, this new breed of teams, now finding it more difficult to get results against the smaller teams that they might have picked points up against in the last couple of seasons because those smaller teams are approaching playing them in a completely different way? So, previously, when teams came to West Ham, as we saw at the weekend, 
they would have in general had a go. They would have attacked. They would have tried to get three points. Now, it seems when teams visit places like West Ham or Wolves, they sit back more. They're more compact because they're expecting more from the opposition. So teams like Wolves and West Ham now need to adapt to that situation in a different way because they now need to break down teams instead of maybe playing on the break mm. as they would have previously. I can, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, certainly if you watch Newcastle at home, as I do, when when we're up against a side like uh, Watford or a Brighton or you know Burnley or something like that, we're, we're an awful front foot side. Mm. We're terrible to watch because we, we just don't have the personnel the personnel or the strategy to dictate a game and play on the front foot so you, you normally in these games the first 45 minutes is a complete non-event where both sides sort of sniff each other out because you know that if you commit too many men forward you can be 2-0 down at half time and the game's done and then the second half the game only really takes place in the last half an hour mm. it's, it's it's weird um and and i think that that's there's probably some truth in what you're saying there but but all and what i'd be interested to do would be look at historically has home advantage eroded slightly in the Premier League over the last 20 years. Yeah. Because I suspect it probably has. Sides have become more adept at playing away. Yeah, and I think that's to do with the way stadiums the have changed as well, maybe Very generic as well, they're yeah. Not, they're not as no. intimidating. There's no standard home end at many grounds no. now. But what I would say, I guess, to kind of play devil's advocate here is, uh, are you really suggesting Crystal Palace are scared of West Ham and they'll sit back? Is that really what you're saying? Because to be I perfectly think honest, I think it's West Ham, as good as they are, and they are probably better than Crystal Palace, and I think they will finish above Crystal Palace this season, despite Palace's flying start to the season. We must give them credit for that. West Ham were never going to Crystal Palace 3 0, 4 0. No, but it was I think never going to happen. 2 1. If you looked at the result, before, if, if someone gave you the print sheet of results before the weekend's games and you went, Crystal Palace are going to win 2 1, you'd probably go, ah, fair enough. But I think there's a difference to the way, and it's difficult to tell with the Roy Hodgson side, maybe potentially in this scenario, I, I, because they think, play compact. Do you, do you see anyway. what I'm saying here, though? I'm not trying. I'm not trying to suggest that know. you're wrong, and I, I think I probably do agree with you in the whole that teams are more likely to sit back, particularly away from home, and, and wait for that moment, you know, to take their chance. But at the same time, I just think that I don't think anyone's really scared of anyone in the Premier League at the moment, apart from. Probably Manchester City and Liverpool, but at the same time, you've got nothing to lose against those bigger teams. It's not about being scared, it's about game management. It's about being aware. West Ham have got 130 million in their front four. So teams are going to be wary of that. I I actually agree with I think Crystal Palace would be totally wary of West Ham. Haller, Yarmolenko, Anderson, Fornals, the other kid, Lanzini. They're all good players. And and West Ham have, have started very well. So I think Palace would have been very, very aware of that. I think anyone going to the to West Ham now will be very, very aware of that. And I think we saw it at the weekend. It's more evident with Wolverhampton, maybe, who have lost games this season that you would have They're not a surprise package anymore, win. either. Not, but the, exactly, other t- teams are setting up differently against them, yet they go and play against Manchester City. And I have to say, I didn't see the game yesterday, so I don't know how this panned out. But I imagine they got to play a closer type of football to the type of football they were playing last season when they had so much success. Well, they counter-attacked twice and scored two goals. Manchester City... Hadn't scored by the hour mark, and by 70 minutes, there were players, Manchester City players, throwing their toys out the pram, getting angry with the referee. Mm. I think Manchester City, because they're not used to being on, on the back foot, they're not used to being the chaser. They're used to the yeah. one being chased, and I think maybe the pressure there was starting to get to, to Manchester City a little bit. Um, but but Wolves have had a hell of a lot of games, so you've got to give them massive credit to go to the Etihad and, and dig in and, and not concede. They're the first team in the Premier League this whole calendar year of 2019 to keep a clean sheet against Manchester City. 
So Wolves have done well, but Adama Traore on the counter, we know he's got pace. You mentioned yeah. what he was like at Middlesbrough. Um, uh, it was almost shades of that, uh, uh, you know, and, and he was there on the break and he was cool enough to take the chance. But you've got to say, credit to Wolves. They, they beat Manchester City in a different way to which Norwich beat them. Norwich almost fought fire with fire, even though, you know, you're talking a, a Bunsen burner against the Roaring Inferno. I haven't, those I haven't heard much from the people of East Anglia recently. <laughs> yeah. After, after, yeah. They, uh, after, after I called them naive before playing the way they were Well, playing. hopefully they abuse me when I say they're they going see, down, because they see, are going down. They've Sorry. turned off Twitter in the Norwich area this weekend. <laughs> they I are any of they them. are plagued with injuries, Norwich. Yeah, they've got, in no, all fairness, they've got, they've got no, no defenders, no defenders <laughs> which at all. Which is a bit of an issue. Uh, well, you can tell when you lose 5-1 to, uh, to Aston Villa, you know that, that there's problems. But as for Wolves, yeah... I mean, the amount of games they've had, Europa League, winning last minute against Besiktas in the Europa League would have given them a confidence going yeah. into the City game. And, you know, scoring last minute gives you a boost. Um, whether you believe in that or not, I truly think it I think does. it's five games now without a loss. So they've certainly started to... Four or five games for Wolves without a loss. They mm. certainly seem to have turned stuff around a little bit. Uh, right, let's wrap up and talk about the title race because that the is... what? Title race. It's a straw, mate. What are you on about? Title race? Really? Don't pull it eight points well, clear in well, October. Well, there we go. Let's talk about it. Because, as you say, eight points clear. I think it's the biggest ever lead at this stage of a season in the Premier League. No think, one's ever think, been eight points ahead this early. I think we might have been eight early. points clear this, this early. Oh, well, look, what, and look what happened Yeah, so his, history's not on our side. So Pep Guardiola is very confident that his team can catch Liverpool up. Can they? Well, clearly, you're back in Liverpool. You think I just think I, I, I think Pep Guardiola's team are amazing. I think they're probably the best side I've ever seen in the Premier League. But I also think Liverpool are really, really, really good. And it's not now. It's not about what Man City can do. It's about what Liverpool can do. Mm. And can you see Liverpool only dropped 16 points all last season? And still didn't win it. And still didn't win it, right? So... They're one win away from the record. They're one win away from Manchester City's record of 18 consecutive Premier League victories. Mm. Man City are now eight points behind. Yeah. So Liverpool have to drop. If Liverpool drop... 16 points again, and I think they're better this year than they were last year in the Premier League. They're winning games that they don't have a right to win, which it shows that they can get they can get by when they're not playing very well. But assume yeah. Liverpool drop, assume Liverpool drop 20 points, which, which would be a marked drop in form given that we're nearly a quarter way through the season now. Mm. Yeah, that means Man City can only drop 12 points between now and the end of the season. Well, if you look here, um, October 2018, the week. After the international break, which is the next set of games, of course, next weekend, uh, international football, then after that, uh, back to Premier League action. So let's just fast forward two weeks for the sake of this. Uh, Manchester City and Liverpool were tied at the top of the Premier League. This was the 22nd of October 2018, uh, both on 23 points. Manchester City with a 10 superior goal difference. The only way further apart this year, at this time this year, than it was this but time it, last year. The only, way it becomes a, the only way it becomes a race again between two is if City beat them home and away. Is it a better situation for City now, this season, than it was last season? So it was seven points last season with 20 games left to play. But at the same time, that seven-point gap had been accrued over a longer period of time. Now it's eight points with, I, I think, about 30 games I, I, left to play. I think the big question is, like what Phil says, what do Liverpool do? It's not... What do they do? They know what they've got to do. They have to keep winning. It's as simple as that. What my question is, can Liverpool handle the pressure? James Milner is the only member of their squad who's won a Premier mm. League title. That could be invaluable. You saw him score the, the last-minute winner against Leicester from the penalty spot. Nerves of steel. Liverpool, have they got bottle? 
that's the question. And people will be listening to this saying, well, we won the Champions League. We had bottled to win that. Yeah, of course. But a title race is a different thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying Liverpool bottled the league last year because it was such a close run thing. I don't think there was any bottling at all last season. But this season will be different. Because Manchester City will be able to handle the pressure because they've done it on multiple occasions before. They've got players who are experienced in that fold and they'll be able to do it. Will Liverpool be able to do it? We have to wait and see, obviously. Will Salah be injured for a long time? There's rumours that he might be out for a bit. How important could that be? You don't, you don't know. I mean, it's important whether... The news Liverpool... this morning is he should be back for the Manchester United game. Okay, fine. So he's got a couple of weeks. International break. Yeah. Good time to get injured uh, yeah, if there is such that, a thing. It? Yeah, yeah. It's al- almost like the... Klopp didn't fancy sending to play for Egypt for, you know... Getting kicked on dust bowl. Getting kicked all over <laughs> yeah, yeah. in an African qualifier or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, if you're a still. City fan right now and you look at Liverpool's last two games against Sheffield United and Leicester City, where they've looked fallible, they've looked like they were capable of dropping points, do you take that as a positive or negative? Do you look at it and go, well, it's a team wi- playing ugly and winning, sign the champions, etc., get the cliche bell rang? Or do you go, this is a team that looks fallible, they might I, drop I points? I had to walk so carefully around saying that playing badly and winning is a sign of champions. <laughs> I, I was like, I, I just sort of skirted it, but you there. just went straight through it, yeah. Um, if I was a Manchester City fan, I would be thinking to myself, when are, when are they going to lose? It's theirs to lose now, right? It's theirs to lose. Absolutely, I'd mm. be going. When when are these? Gonna, when are they going to trip up? Because Man City, Man City aren't playing badly particularly. They've just you know they've done they've had a decent start by pretty much any year you want to measure the Premier League by. But Liverpool have won every game they played. Yeah, and what I would say is, if you're a Manchester City fan, you're thinking, right, we haven't got our best defender in Laporte. Mm. We haven't got our best left back in Mendy. Our best winger Sane is injured. Kevin De Bruyne, our best midfielder is injured at the moment as well, got injured again last week. So, I mean, you're talking a Manchester City side last year that beat Liverpool to the title by one point is now missing forward. De Bruyne, you can kind of discount he didn't play many games last year due to injury again. But you're missing at least three mm. of that key squad, key side, starting eleven that, that won them the title last year. And that was only by the medium of one point. So you take three of those key players out, including the centre-back Laporte, who I think is probably Very arguably the most he? important of all three of them. Mm. I would pull you up on um, saying Sane is the best winger in City's squad, but we've run out of time, so I can't. I did want to talk about City's transfer policy this January as well, whether they're going to bring her in, but we haven't got time for that either, so we'll have to do it on a podcast later in the week. Phil, Niall, thank you very much. Cheers, Cheers, guys. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss an episode. There is a new one every single day of the season, meaning you are never, meaning you are never more than a click away from the latest Premier League news. We'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily, Premier League updates.